the armies of the coalition in command of all the roads and marching en masse on Paris, La Vendée triumphant, Lyon in insurrection, Toulon surrendered to the English, who were landing fourteen thousand men there. For him and his fellow magistrates, these were not only events of interest to all the world, but so many matters of domestic concern. Foredoomed to perish in the ruin of the fatherland, they made the public salvation their own proper business. The nation's interests, thus entangled with their own, dictated their opinions and passions and conduct. Gamelin, when he sat on the jury bench, was handed a letter from Troubert, secretary of the Committee of Defense. It was to notify his appointment as Commissioner of Supplies of Powder and Saltpeter. You will excavate all the cellars in the section in order to extract the substances necessary for the manufacture of powder. Tomorrow, perhaps, the enemy will be before Paris. The soil of the fatherland must provide us with the lightning we shall launch against our aggressors. I send you herewith a schedule of instructions from the Convention regarding the manipulation of saltpeters. Farewell and brotherly greeting. At that moment the accused was brought in. He was one of the last of the defeated generals whom the Convention delivered over, one after the other, to the tribunal, and the most insignificant. At sight of him Gamelin shuddered. Once again he seemed to see the same soldier whom three weeks before, looking on as a spectator, he had seen sentenced and sent to the guillotine. The man was the same, with his obstinate, opinionated look. The procedure was the same. He gave his answers in a cunning, brutish way that ruined the effect even of the most convincing. His cavilling and chicanery, and the accusations he leveled against his subordinates, made you forget he was fulfilling the honorable task of defending his honor and his life. Everything was uncertain. Every statement disputed. Position of the armies, total of forces engaged, munitions of war, orders given, orders received— movements of troops. Nobody knew anything. It was impossible to make head or tail of these confused, nonsensical, aimless operations, which had ended in disaster. Defending counsel and the accused himself were as much in the dark as were accuser, judges, and jury, and, strange to say, not a soul would admit, whether to himself or to other people, that this was the case. The judges took a childish delight in drawing plans and discussing problems of tactics and strategy— while the prisoner constantly betrayed his inborn predilection for crooked ways. The arguments dragged on endlessly, and all the time Gamelin could see on the rough roads of the north the ammunition wagons stogged in the mire, and the guns capsized in the ruts, and along all the ways the broken and beaten columns flying in disorder, while from all sides the enemy's cavalry was debouching by the abandoned defiles. And from this host of men betrayed, he could hear a mighty shout going up in accusation of the general. When the hearing closed, darkness was falling on the hall, and the head of Marat gleamed half-seen like a phantom above the President's head. The jury was called upon to give judgment, but was of two minds. Gamelin, a hoarse, strangled voice, but in resolute accents, declared the accused guilty of treason against the Republic, and a murmur of approval rose from the crowd, a flattering unction to his youthful virtue. The sentence was read by the light of torches which cast a lurid, uncertain gleam on the prisoner's hollow temples, beaded with drops of sweat. Outside the doors, on the steps crowded with a customary swarm of cockaded harridans, Gamelin could hear his name, which the habitués of the tribunal were beginning to know, passed from mouth to mouth, and was assailed by a bevy of tricoteurs who shook their fists in his face, demanding the head of the Austrian. The next day Évariste had to give judgment on the fate of a poor woman— the widow Merion. She distributed bread from house to house and tramped the streets, pushing a little handcart and carrying a wooden tally hung at her waist, on which she cut notches with her knife, representing the number of loaves she had delivered. 
Her gains amounted to eight sous a day. The deputy of the public prosecutor displayed an extraordinary virulence towards the wretched creature, who had it appear shouted, Vive le roi, on several occasions, uttered anti-revolutionary remarks in the houses where she called to leave the daily dole of bread, and been mixed up in a plot for the escape of the woman Capet. In answer to the judge's question, she admitted the facts alleged against her, whether fool or fanatic, she professed royalist sentiments of the most enthusiastic sort, and waited her doom. The revolutionary tribunal made a point of proving the triumph of equality by showing itself just as severe for street porters and servant-maids as for the aristocrats and financiers. Gamelin could conceive no other system possible under a popular government. He would have deemed it a mark of contempt, an insult to the people, to exclude it from punishment. That would have been to consider it, so to speak, as unworthy of chastisement by the law. Reserved for aristocrats only, 